Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about palliative care and resources available to patients with Dr. Elizabeth Persich. Dr. Persich is Director of Adult Inpatient Palliative Care at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. So maybe we can start off by you telling us a little bit more about yourself and what it is you do. I'm trained in medical oncology and palliative care um, and initially trained in internal medicine prior to further subspecialization. So I think one of the questions that always comes up is to tell us a little bit more about palliative care. I think even now um, there are misperceptions about what exactly is palliative care. Some people um, think that palliative care is analogous to death panels. Other people think that palliative care is equivalent to hospice. Um, but many times we hear that palliative care is something that actually is part and parcel of, of the treatment of cancer patients and, and actually starts at the time of diagnosis a, as an integrated part of the team. So maybe you can help us to understand a little bit more about what exactly is palliative care. Yeah, so palliative care is a field in medicine that focuses on supporting patients and families that are facing serious illness. And we can be involved at any stage in illness from the time of diagnosis to progression of disease and even end of life care, whether that be hospice or not. Um, and we, we really use an interdisciplinary approach to support patients and their ca caregivers or families, social workers, a dedicated pharmacist who specializes in pain and symptom management. So we focus on the care of patients and families facing serious illness and use an interdisciplinary approach to do so. Um, hospice care is really care that's focused on symptom management and uh, quality of life for patients with a prognosis of six months or less that are not interested in furthering um, cancer-directed uh, therapy or aggressive medical interventions at that time. So that is an element of palliative care, but that is really a subset or a more um, limited um, focus of what we do in palliative care. And so you know, when we think about palliative care, I mean, it certainly sounds amazing, right, that you have this very diverse uh, team of multidisciplinary professionals that are really geared to looking after the needs of, of patients, whether it's uh, physical symptom management, whether it's psychosocial care, whether it's um, spiritual um, care, etc. Um, one would think that uh, that would be something that um, many patients may want to avail themselves of, but what do patients do if they're not in a large academic center? So, you know, is that something that, um, you know, a community oncologist would be able to provide or is there a palliative care uh, facilities available in the community? Um, how, how do patients who aren't at a large academic center get uh, the same quality of care? Yeah, so that um, element of, of equity and access are certainly major factors in the delivery of palliative care nationally and internationally. 
the majority of larger hospitals, regardless of um, academic center, urban versus rural, et cetera, do have palliative care access. Um, so dedicated palliative care inpatient or outpatient services. Um, when you're looking at more uh, rural-based hospitals, hospitals outside of um, larger urban centers or non-academic centers, that percentage goes down, certainly. Um, there is a huge deficit of palliative care trained, fellowship trained, or otherwise um, palliative care subspecialty trained providers in the community at large in this country, unfortunately. Um, many of the aspects of care that we can provide, including pain and symptom management, um, psychosocial support, social work, chaplaincy, et cetera, can be provided by other subspecialists. But as all of our patients with advanced cancers understand, there are a lot of unique needs in this population um, that where the subspecialty support really does bring a value added to their quality of life and their experience of illness. And so can you tell us a little bit more about the data in terms of the value of palliative care? Because I can imagine that some listeners uh, who may um, be thinking about this from a, a cynical standpoint may think, you know, if I'm being treated um, with chemotherapy or radiation and I have some side effects or some pain or, you know, I'm, I'm going through the inevitable anxiety of recurrence, et cetera, and maybe having a spiritual crisis that, that, you know, my physician who's treating me, my oncologist can really take care of that. I mean, they're the person who I'm going to tell that I've got symptom X, Y, or Z. Um, what are the data to support um, really the integration of palliative care as a multi-specialty unit um, in the care of patients uh, with cancer. Yeah, so that is a really wonderful question, and that's been ongoing area, an ongoing area of research, and will continue to be for some time. Um, the addition of palliative care, and there's, you know, looking at certain disease subspecialties. Um, I'm not going to get it too far into the weeds, but in effect, uh, we can help better improve. Uh, anxiety, depression, coping skills, um, symptom management, certainly. Um, we can help reduce uh, readmission rates and length of stay for patients that have recurrent hospitalizations, for instance. Um, so those are some of the value-added things that we can bring to the care of patients with cancer. Of course, you know, I'm trained in medical oncology as well, and I think Communication, symptom management are all areas of expertise for medical oncologists. Um, and that's something that, you know, they're very well versed in doing. However, there can be very complex uh, symptoms that may arise and having that additional set of eyes and further subspecialty support to really optimize the care and quality of life for patients facing serious illness and complex symptom management uh, is definitely something that we can help support. So, you know, it's interesting because um, while many of us may think about palliative care as really being a value add in terms of the experience, the comment that you made about really reducing recurrence rates, reducing length of stay, those more practical, tangible outcomes might not be something that everybody really knows about. Can you comment a little bit more on the studies that found that and, and what the science is? 
Yeah. Um, so for patients that are being um, that are hospitalized uh, with an un- unplanned hospitalization, palliative care consultation may help um, reduce the likelihood of patients being readmitted in the future. And a lot of that is really driven by clarifying patient goals of care um, when appropriate. If patients are interested, that could mean transition to hospice or more outpatient-directed therapies moving forward. Um, that's where kind of the utilization comes in. And I know I'm speaking from a larger kind of health quality and utilization perspective, but what this really means is less time in the hospital and more time at home if that is what is within the patient's goals. More time with family and better symptom management is, is the goal of our palliative care efforts. A few other important areas where the value of palliative care has been demonstrated um, for patients with advanced lung cancer, early integration of palliative care has demonstrated an improved survival um, to the effect that many of our cancer-directed therapies and chemotherapies may add in terms of prognosis and and time. Um, Further, palliative care support can help uh, loved ones who are coping with the experience of facing cancer of their family members. Um, so sometimes that's just additional psychosocial support, navigating the medical system, uh, improving communication, et cetera. Yeah. You know, there's there's a few things in what you just said that are I- incredibly interesting. One is uh, the study you alluded to um, in lung cancer patients where it was found that palliative care actually improved survival. I mean, many people will understand the reduced length of stay if patients are being transitioned to hospice. But then that really furthers this notion of palliative care as being kind of an expedited death panel, right? Um, We will get you out of the hospital so that you can go to hospice to die. That's the cynical um, kind of look at that. But I think that the study that you pointed out that was published in the New England Journal, which found that for lung cancer patients, palliative care actually improves survival was incredibly eye-opening. Can you talk a little bit more about that study and why it is that you think that palliative care actually improves survival? It, it seems like symptom management is one thing, but to improve survival is quite another. This is something I talk about every single day um, because symptom management is very real, not only in terms of the quality of life for an individual patient and their patient ex- and their experience as a human, but additionally, their ability to live life the way they want to live it. Are they comfortable enough to, to get up and make a meal, get a cup of tea? Are they comfortable enough to have a phone call with a loved one, have a meal, um, mobilize themselves, get dressed for the day? All of those things that are going to help them remain as physically active as possible. And that helps improve their performance status, their ability to remain as, as strong and fit and healthy as possible to continue cancer-directed therapy, and also to avoid you know, challenges that may arise during treatment, right? So for example, poorly controlled nausea, um, they're going to eat and drink less, they may come in dehydrated, um, they may not be able to take their other medications or have more pain, for instance. So managing symptoms has very real effects in terms of their ability to be independent and as active and healthy as possible to continue cancer-directed therapy, in addition to just feeling better, which really, really matters. And I think the early identification of symptoms and early um, ability to address these symptoms is key. So the vast majority, like over 95% of cancer pain can be 
relatively easily controlled. And we have a lot of different modalities to do that, whether it's pain medications, interventional techniques, radiation um, therapies, interventional radiology support. We can do so much to help manage pain. And I think many patients feel that, you know, I have an advanced cancer. Of course, I'm going to have pain. Well, we can do a better job almost always in in improving symptoms. And I think that that's key. And when it comes to um, caregiver support, I think navigating um, cancer care with a loved one is extraordinarily challenging. And I can only imagine what my patients go through. And from a personal experience, I've been there as well as a caregiver. And when you're seeing your loved one suffer and in pain, it's so much more distressing and difficult and just demoralizing. And when you have a team that can really help support them in navigating this extraordinarily complex system, in navigating symptom management and complex medications, that really helps not just the patient, but also their loved ones who are you know, wanting to do anything and everything to help care for them. Well, we're going to pick up the conversation talking about the impact of palliative care on caregivers right after we take a short break for a medical minute. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers comes from Smilo Cancer Hospital, where their one-of-a-kind sexuality, intimacy, and menopause program combines medical and psychological interventions for women who experience sexual dysfunction after cancer. SmiloCancerHospital.org. It's estimated that over 240,000 men in the U.S. will be diagnosed with prostate cancer this year, with over 3,000 new cases being identified here in Connecticut. One in eight American men will develop prostate cancer in the course of his lifetime. Major advances in the detection and treatment of prostate cancer have dramatically decreased the number of men who die from the disease. Screening can be performed quickly and easily in a physician's office using two simple tests, a physical exam, and a blood test. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and its Milo Cancer Hospital, where doctors are also using the Artemis machine, which enables targeted biopsies to be performed. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Elizabeth Prishik. We are discussing the field of palliative care and resources available to patients. And right before the break, um, Elizabeth, you mentioned something that I think was particularly important to think about, which is that so often when we think about palliative care, we think about the patient, right? Uh, Their symptom management, their uh, spiritual existential crises, uh, their um, mental health and emotional well-being. But palliative care can really extend to the family and the caregivers as well. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so I think the services that we offer as palliative care specialists really are focused not only on the patient and who's experiencing serious illness, um, but also on their loved ones and caregivers, which are an integral part of the care of any patient, especially those managing um, complex, serious illness and cancer. So the integration of palliative care, especially early integration, can really help support patients, families, and caregivers in terms of feeling more competent and prepared for the care that they're providing to their loved ones and also helps decrease the risk of depression and other um, signs of of stress um, as part of the caregiving experience later on. 
So, so dive into that in a bit more detail. How exactly do you do that? I mean, when we think about palliative care and symptom management, okay, we can think about, well, there are a number of things that you can do for pain. You can prescribe opioids or non-steroidals or whatever. Um, for nausea, you can provide medications for that. But how do you really kind of do this other part of making caregivers feel more competent and, um, you know, preparing them for what is to be a significant load on top of the emotional load that they already have to carry on top of the load of, you know, everyday life, which these days is not incredibly easy either. Yeah. So I think, you know, in my mind, the largest umbrella of what we offer is really the support and the, the, reminder that they're not alone in their caregiving experience. So, um, you know, I think symptom management and communication is one key part of things. So the work we do as palliative care subspecialists managing complex symptoms, whether that be pain, whether that be nausea, um, anxiety, depression, insomnia, fatigue, um, poor appetite, anorexia, things like that, knowing that your loved one has their physical and psychological symptoms managed as well as possible certainly helps decrease my associated distress as a caregiver, knowing that they're physically and mentally as well cared for as possible. Um, our social workers definitely can help navigate resources in the community and other psychosocial support that may be helpful. Sometimes that's um, identifying financial aid or financial supports that the patient or family may need. Um, sometimes that could be accessing other government or communi community-related resources that could help support caregivers. Um, we also have a relationship with the Yale Law School, which is um, pretty novel on a national level, um, where we can help work with um, patients to provide pro bono legal assistance should they need it. So this may come into play with um, wills or guardianship plans for minor children, et cetera. And that can be a huge source of stress, anxiety, um, and a major, major concern for, for families and caregivers as well as for patients. Um, spiritual care can help navigate um, spiritual distress and existential distress. So whether the patient and family have specific religious um, religious uh, memberships or, or ideologies that they participate in, um, or just kind of search for greater meaning in the setting of serious illness. And this is a very important aspect of care that our team helps to address. Um, our pharmacists can be exceptionally helpful in terms of navigating access and insurance coverage and finding the most affordable and accessible medications to help manage symptoms. And as we all know, um, if patients cannot access or afford medications, they're not going to be able to be adherent to these medications. So they may be helpful, but if you can only afford half of your pills, you're not going to have the support that you fully need. So our team really helps comprehensively um, support patients and families that way. Yeah, I mean, I think you bring up such a good point, which is this whole financial toxicity of cancer management. And, you know, particularly when dealing with something that is complex, where there are many medications, often very expensive medications. Um, and, you know, it's not like cancer books an appointment on your calendar where you can say, okay, I'm going to save up because I know that my cancer is going to be coming in XYZ number of years, right? Mm -hmm. It's often something that is, you know, unexpected, out of the blue. And on top of the 
increase in financial expenditure that's required, there's often a decrease in income, right? You you can't work as much um, you as the patient, right? You may, you may uh, be off work. Mm-hmm. Um, and your family may also have financial toxicity uh, for themselves because they may need to be taking time off of work um, to stay home with you and to provide care. So can you talk a little bit more about financial toxicity and more particularly about the resources that patients and families can avail themselves of. I mean, I'm thinking specifically about patients who may not have uh, the fortune to come to a place like Yale or Smilo where, you know, you have this integrated team that's able to really look at these and and tap into resources. But are there things that other people in the community um, can avail themselves of um, that might be helpful? I mean, the first thing that comes to mind, and this is not an easy fix, but it's really national advocacy and recognition of the enormous financial toxicity, particularly that cancer care places upon patients and families. Because in no society do I believe that a diagnosis should uh, lead to a very high minority of patients, you know, facing bankruptcy within two years of their cancer diagnosis, it's upwards of 40%. So this just shouldn't even be a reality, but it is for many patients and families. So I think the system overall needs to change. (laughs) Um, That is a huge ask, of course, but I think the first step is recognition and talking about the enormous financial toxicity that patients and families face. And some of this is from out-of-pocket costs, um, deductibles, copays, et cetera, but also loss of income and the extraordinary cost of caregiving um, and other needs that patients and families facing serious illness face. Um, in terms of community resources, you know, I wish I had my social worker here to talk with me, but I know that there are various um, community grants, whether they be at state, national levels, or cancer center-specific levels to help support patients and families, um, FMLA for caregiving resources or ability to have your family caregivers be paid um, to some degree. Um, that is a possibility depending on where you live and what your individual circumstances are. Um, but it's it's challenging. And I've, I've been there <laughs> as a caregiver myself and um, faced, you know, bankruptcy of a loved one who was facing serious illness. Um, and it's very, very difficult to navigate and you need a team to support you. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a palliative care provider or a palliative care social worker, but most cancer institutions if not all, should have a financial navigator or a patient and family advocate that can help direct loved ones and patients to those resources. So I think the take home here is that this is a major, major problem and you are not alone um, and that there should be a wider recognition within the cancer community and also without that, you know, this degree of financial toxicity is not acceptable. And it and it has real world outcomes, right? This isn't just numbers in your bank account. This is your um, legacy. This is your ability to, you know, maintain your home, your way of life, your livelihood, uh, things that your family members may need. I've seen patients face very, very difficult decisions um, based on finan- finances related to their cancer. And it's just, it shouldn't be that way. 
Yeah, nobody should have to choose between putting food on the table or or getting the medications that they need to fight their cancer for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, But it sounds to me like the the key message here is if you don't have a palliative care team um, at your cancer center, at least ask. Ask what resources are available and talk to your doctor and your your healthcare team about what's going on with you so that um, they can um, look around for resources on your behalf and certainly advocate on your behalf. Yeah. And the financial toxicity piece is just as important as any other symptom, right? So, you know, physical symptoms, psychological symptoms, the financial symptoms, because, you know, Getting to appointments is expensive. Paying for medications is expensive. Um, taking time to be a caregiver or to pay for a caregiver is extraordinarily expensive. And that's going to affect your ability to take the best care of yourself as possible. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about your experience? Did you have a palliative care team when you were going through this? And if so, what impact did that have? Well, I was the palliative care team in a sense. Um, actually, no, that's that's incorrect. I was. Uh, it was before my palliative care training. So, um, my mother was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer when I was an oncology fellow, um, and so I was oncology trained certainly. And um, we had a collection of family members that all came together to help support her. And it was kind of an ongoing joke because we had an accountant, a lawyer, a psychologist, <laughs> and a, a former hospice nurse all on her team. Um, and <laughs> we were a little over, you, over-resourced, one might say, but I got to tell you, it was the hardest thing I've ever done. Um, she did see outpatient palliative care, and they helped manage her symptoms, uh, but there was really an army of caregivers, a small army, um, that really helped navigate her care and to support her. Um, and you know, I for whatever it's worth, I think she was an exceptionally exceptional case in terms of the support she had, both medically and and financially, um, with our resources. But uh, she was hospitalized for just two days um, in an eighteen month course, and um, was able to pass away at home with her family. So we were grateful for that. Well, you know, I, I am so very sorry for your loss, but it does sound like. You know, she was very blessed that she had such an extraordinary family who um, were uh, so well resourced, uh, both in terms of their educational background, their material resources, and and their outpouring of love that they were able to come around her and really help her through her journey. You know, one of the things that I wonder about are patients who don't have that kind of family support. Now, certainly we've talked about palliative care as being um, important for for caregivers, but what about patients who are going through this alone, who don't have family? Um, how How do you deal with that? So navigating serious illness without a strong social or caregiving network is an enormous challenge. And I think that is an opportunity to access as many resources as possible, whether that be through the medical oncologist or whatever subspecialty of cancer care the patient may need um, and maximizing whatever uh, social work, psychological, and community supports as possible. It is a huge challenge. It is a huge challenge. And it really does take take expert caregiving. Um, and that's not something that typically our medical system can provide in a 24-hour sense um, that many patients need. 
Yeah, it, it certainly can be challenging, but it sounds like at least having some of the resources of a palliative care team to to kind of scaffold um, care when uh, when you don't really have much of anything else is so important. An important thing that palliative care does is help identify and you know healthcare proxies and su- and supports, right? So if patients aren't able to speak for themselves, or if something were to happen suddenly, who would you want to be? your point person? Who would you want to help make your medical decisions? And even people that may have pretty limited um, family or social supports, more often than not, there is one person that they really trust and value to help support them in their times of need. And identifying those people is so important. And maybe a friend from the army or from the shelter or somebody that they you know grew up with that they still keep in touch with periodically, like identifying those people that can be an advocate for the patient and help with decision-making when needed is really key. And another element of what we do is help to identify like what those wishes are, God, you know, if things were to get worse. Dr. Elizabeth Persich is an assistant professor and director of adult inpatient palliative care at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital.